This conference is all about bringing together that powerful triumvirate, people, capital, and ideas. In 2015, the Paris Climate Accords set the target of limiting global warming to well below two degrees. To reduce the disastrous effects of climate change, we need a whole economy approach. Business, government, and finance working together, taking swift action to reduce emissions, supporting and championing the innovators in cleantech, promoting leadership that sees decarbonization as an opportunity, an opportunity for innovation, an opportunity for global collaboration, an opportunity to build a better world for the future generation. The people here today, the people driving this change. Welcome to Innovation Zero. So welcome. Thank you. 129 recommendations. I'm not going to ask you to run through all of them, but the key points that you care the most about, just talk us through. Well, I'd actually say that when it comes to the Net Zero Review, Mission Zero, one of my key priorities was not just to produce a shopping list, policy recommendations, you know, you get countless reports that do that. For me, it was about creating a new narrative around Net Zero that potentially all political parties could buy into. You know, we won't achieve net zero unless we have political consensus. In the same way the Climate Change Act was delivered in 2008 by all political parties agreeing to come together to tackle climate change. And what I wanted to send was a message that net zero isn't just an environmental policy tool, you know, vital though that is, it is the critical economic tool of our decade, if not our generation and that there is no new economy without a green economy. And that when it comes to looking at net zero, we now face as the UK a choice between a net zero path that potentially delivers up to a trillion pounds worth of inward investment by 2030 or the not zero path. So making that case of why net zero is so important, you all know this, you all attended today because you fully are on board with what the opportunity net zero can bring. But for me, setting that out was also about that long-term approach, understanding that if we're going to get the investment that we require for the future, we're going to have to have certainty, consistency, clarity, and continuity of policy uh, frameworks, the four Cs that I identified in the Mission Zero report. And we had 10 10-year missions by which to de-risk the cost of investment, de-risk the cost of capital, bring down the learning costs of your technology. That would be the key takeaway from the report. Yeah, there's some recommendations uh, in the review uh, of the 129, uh, things like an office for net zero delivery, a net zero roadmap, technology roadmap in terms of understanding what are the technologies we need to deploy working backwards, understanding that when it comes to net zero, it's all about grid, 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 and unblocking those delays and challenges that are going to prevent us from achieving our net zero ambitions. But let's also put in place a long-term framework that will outlive any one political party in government or any one single spending review. Because if we want to be able to ensure that we can deliver on net zero, we've got to take that long-term programmatic approach. So you said they all know the economic case for net zero. People beyond here, obviously, a lot of people beyond here know that case as well. Why in 2023 do you think you have to make that case to the government? I think the worry is that Sometimes, and we've seen this with other particular areas of policy, you get a funneling mechanism take place where actually detractors, you know, opponents of particular causes, 
whatever reason, wish to cast them into a, a culture war for whatever click they wish to get uh, on social media. I was worried that, that Net Zero was following that route. And actually, you only get a tiny number of voices, and they happen to be particularly loud. And the challenge, you must know this, Joanna, you know, someone in the media, is the media you know, reports on this. But that in itself, I think, gives undue weight and prominence to some of those voices. And I was determined to ensure that when it came to net zero, there is a silent majority of people who are in support of taking action on climate change. When you look at the political polling, yes, the economy and the NHS you know, rank as number one and two, but actually tackling climate change, you know, delivering on ensuring we can protect the planet for the next generation ranks pretty consistently at number three. So making sure that we hold our elected politicians of whichever political party to account on delivering on the wishes of their constituents is, is, is really important. But it's maintaining that we, you, know, you can never rest on your laurels. You've always got to make the case and reinvent the case. And that will also be the case with net zero. It's you know, not just about 2050. You know it's about 2030, meeting our NDC commitment of 73% emissions reduction. But you can never assume just because you've set out the reasons why that ultimately you're going to be able to maintain that argument. You've always got to reinvent yourself and think about how to repackage that argument for the future. So how has the government responded? So by my own sort of calculations, and this may be a bit inexact, because what we had was the net zero review is 129 recommendations. I also tabulated them with the time frame for delivery, because I think that's also really important when it comes to policy making. Don't just make sort of pledges or commitments set out when you're going to look to make them by. Uh, so in the net zero review, we set out 129 recommendations, 77 of them were to begin this side of this parliament. The government's agreed to take forward 70 uh, with the agreed time frame. Another 30 they've agreed to, but not on the accepted time frame, saying that they will potentially look at it uh, in the future. And they've sort of flat out refused about 29 recommendations. Okay, so this was your roadmap to achieving climate targets. If the government's not going to follow it, what are the chances of those targets being hit? Well, I think, for me, I had a choice taking forward the Net Zero review. I was the minister, the energy minister that signed Net Zero into law back in 2019. And if you'd asked me then that 90% of the world's GDP would be under a Net Zero target of some form, I simply wouldn't have believed you. So I think it's important to recognize the, the pace and scale of change. Uh, I was just walking through the lobby here today and was just absolutely astounded by you know, an event like this would be taking place solely dedicated to net zero. I just simply would have been unfathomable back uh, four years ago. So we have come far. You know, we have gone faster than any other nation in the UK. I think it's important to recognize we are you know, globally leading, but we shouldn't want to cede that leadership to, to other nations like the United States, like Germany or other European nations where capital is at risk of going instead of the UK. So making that case to, you know, to government is really important because it's not just about which policy recommendations they take forwards. Delay and inaction is just as bad as refusing to take forwards policies. So there may be policies they're thinking about. You know, Jeremy Hunt said they were going to do a response to the US Inflation Reduction Act come the autumn statement. That's too long. You know, we will have seen you know, people move with their feet, companies move across the pond you know, as a result of us not taking action further, sort of faster. But at the same time, you know, credit where credit's due, the government has taken forward a number of, of areas of focus, you know, whether CCUS, whether hydrogen, whether nuclear. You know, we are worldwide renowned when it comes to offshore uh, wind. We just need that leadership across all forms of technology and to recognize that we need 
this with net zero, the challenge around innovation is, is not just backing winners, but ensuring we provide the opportunity to allow technologies that will come on stream. There is a first mover advantage. There is no freeloaders uh, opportunity or, or free here. We've got to be able to act early as first movers. And that would be the message I say to the government. You know, they're doing a, a strong job, but obviously not uh, strong enough. Yeah, I mean, we started the day talking to scientists who were talking about the timeframes and the targets and saying, even if we go on with the commitments that are currently already made, we're still going to overshoot 1.5 Celsius. And we're, we're talking about temperature records being broken, climate increasing beyond those levels in a way that is, you know, coming in the next decades. Does, does government understand, do you think, the urgency of that time frame? I think the challenge has been in the past. We're often prisoners of the policy frameworks that we choose to adopt. And, you know, we've seen that internationally in the past with international climate sort of failures such as Copenhagen. But the challenge we've had in the past is we've pushed adaptation to one side uh, with the fear of saying if we talk too much about adaptation, we're somehow not investing enough in mitigation. And I think you know, we can recognize that that was a mistake internationally, that even if we hit our net zero targets, you know, global warming is here to stay. A lot of what we need to take forwards in terms of investing in the grid needs to now take account of the adaptation that will occur and ensuring that we build in resilient structures for the future of our energy mix is now equally important as taking forwards a decarbonized energy system. So I think in a way, Policymaking is behind the curve of, of the reality of, of temperature rises. It's behind the curve of, of the reality of, of, I think, local enthusiasm to go further, faster. But the challenge I think we've always had when it comes to understanding a warming world is how do you encapsulate that into a policy framework that isn't localized? You know, net zero is a, is a global framework. We've got that global agreement now towards that, and we've managed to established the 1.5 degrees within the net zero sort of framework, although Paris originally was talking about that being sort of mid middle of the second half of the century towards two degrees. We will need to face up to the reality that at one stage, yeah, we will probably overshoot 1.5 degrees. We can keep pushing on, trying our best to demonstrate the urgency uh, of the situation. But I th also think we need an adaptation equivalent of net zero where we would get global agreement about what needs to happen beyond loss and damage. Because adaptation is happening to every country, and we've got to be able to articulate that in a way that demonstrates you know, what investment's needed. In terms of specific measures, one of our earlier panelists was talking about putting a, a value to the cost of carbon, which obviously if you explore that, it takes you down the route of a carbon tax. What would you think about something like that? I think this is coming. Part six of the Net Zero Review, Pillar Six, was Net Zero in the Future, and I was absolutely determined that we would say something. It would be the first government document would talk about the importance of the emerging voluntary carbon market, how this should be underpinned for the future, what's the role of the City of London in potentially taking leadership on you know, establishing rules and regulations around this. I think we will move into an international regulated carbon market eventually. The question is which country wants to demonstrate sort of leadership on this for the future. Why, why not the UK? Well, I hope so. I mean, I think that the real challenge is the city of London loses out to places like Dubai. I mean, already Singapore in, and the government in Singapore have been setting out frameworks by which your government is able to back the voluntary carbon market framework. So this is happening. The reality is obviously the carbon price at the moment is not the real, the real price of carbon. 
And yeah, there are two challenges to that, is that at the moment it now becomes impossible financially to stack up an effective business case for carbon removals or carbon engineering. And obviously the Inflation Reduction Act is pushing towards delivering down on the learning cost of the technology where potentially there'll, there'll be a price point in the middle where they'll meet. Yeah, we have a, a carbon price system already with the, the ETS uh, and obviously how their U UK ETS reflects with the EU ETS and potentially what reforms might come around carbon border adjustment mechanism. You know, the ETS is going to be reformed. The government, in their, recommend, in their response to Net Zero Review, we set out that the government should provide greater certainty for what's happening with ETS. But that's a ratchet mechanism, which will see the, the price of carbon dioxide per tonne you know, go up, because ultimately the reality is that the carbon price is, is far undervalued at the moment. Uh, and until we have that effective mechanism in place, no one is going to be able to demonstrate the economic return, which will come eventually. But we do need international agreements, but I think national leadership also on recognizing this is the future and this is the future by which you know, we are going to be able to create net zero markets. So let's get on with it. And obviously it's not just about showing the, the financial benefits of the alternative, but potentially driving behavior. I mean, British government introduced the, 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 the tax on sugary fizzy drinks and that has an impact on behavior and it also gets a a conversation going. Yeah, and I think that's a, a, a really interesting point on the transition. We always talk about the energy transition, but we're also in a, a policy transition. And I often say, you know, we've got to make do with the tools we have at the moment, knowing that they're imperfect, and at the same time work on future innovations, not just in technology, but in policy. So the Net Zero Review took forward a number of those areas where we need to be able to give people the information, the transparency, to then hold organizations, companies accountable for what they as consumers, as the customer, wish to seek in this new net zero economy. So understanding the need for uh, carbon product labeling, mm. whether that's on food, you know, whether that's in mandatory low carbon product standards in, in materials, whether that's providing the ability for people to make flight choice decisions, looking at the carbon content of the flight. You know, all this is needed to underpin ultimately what we need to do with net zero, which is not to force net zero on people. I think for me, the challenge is if, we, if, we, if net zero is seen as something being done to people, it will fail. We can't win the argument through fear and coercement. We've got to be able to demonstrate the incentives, the pull mechanisms by which we can really demonstrate to people this is an opportunity. It will make them uh, richer and it will deliver a better quality of life for them ultimately. Do you think there is a disconnect between a, a desire to see things be different, the behavior that people continue with, and a lack of understanding about what is behind the choices that are being taken? Yeah, I think challenge with net zero, we're, li we're leading in, living in such extraordinary times. Obviously, tackling the climate crisis is the challenge of our generation, and it is an exceptional challenge. But it's unexceptional in a way in that it is a transition. There's been many transitions we've gone through in our lives before. So understanding what are the lessons we can learn from those transitions, the transitions that have been successful. You know, I remember when I first became a member of parliament in 2010, there were lots of uh, elderly constituents who you know, obviously still didn't use the internet, were sort of fearful of online banking, for example. So when their banks closed, you know, and actually there were ways in which they were able to be taken on a journey 
and it was able to be demonstrated, they could, they could see the change. Mm -hmm. And we've seen a, a huge number of technologies in our lifetime come on stream, flat screen TVs, LEDs, mobile phones, Netflix. You know, no one bemoaned the loss of their DVD collection to Netflix. And it's how do we understand that when it comes to people's boilers, they don't need to cling on to this model. You know, boilers were once in the position of where we were with net zero and that everyone had coal fires and we moved to central heating systems. You know, we moved off town gas. Yeah, there have been other challenges which you know, the public have accepted over time. And it's understanding how can we not just learn the lessons from history, but recognize the transition may be uncomfortable. But if we work with those people for whom we've got the greatest concerns and understand from their perspective, you know, where do they see where they need additional help? And the Net Zero Review was quite clear and honest on that. There will be individuals who won't necessarily benefit upfront from the, the transition. And we sh that's where we should target government support. Let's be honest about what's needed in terms of to target that investment for the future. But let's recognize that you know, your boiler is going to need replacing, your petrol car is going to need replacing anyway. Just in the next 10 years, instead of going for another petrol car, you go for an EV. Instead of going back for another boiler, you go for a heat pump. This is quite unextraordinary in a way by actually delivering the transformation we need. One of the aspects raised in some of the discussions earlier about how to actually drive people to make those choices which are a cost up front i mean you say when a car needs to be replaced obviously people can use their cars for as long as you know until they they stop working you know people will make the choice when they have no further choice or when it's easy for them and the conversation was around government not or policy not basically making it straightforward and effectively a no-brainer for the consumers that this is something simple you can easily find someone to do the work. It's, it's not going to be something where there's so much onus on the consumer. How can the government do that? I mean, we look at heat pumps, for instance, yep. and they're not being rolled out in a way that, is, yep. that people would like to see. So, so the, I think this comes back to, to two separate strands of, of what's needed when it comes to future policy uh, delivery. One is that long-term certainty, that programmatic approach, the mission-based section of, of the Mission Zero report. You know, Germany have had an insulation efficiency program for several years now, you know, the KFW, which is guaranteed for a decade. The Inflation Reduction Act sets out a 45Q tax credit that is guaranteed to at least the 1st of January 2033. Providing that certainty and policy stability unlocks the cost of capital, brings down the, what the, one of the greatest costs of the transition, which is the future labor market costs, because it, is it allows the supply chain to know they've got certainty to develop for the future. And no more is that important than in the, in the fragmented energy efficiency market that has not been given the chance to grow uh, and to stabilize. You know, we've had these concertina sort of projects, the Green Homes Grant, for example, being a classic case of failure, where it's like three-year programs. You know, we need to be able to sort of set out that long-term commitment that the government stands by you and if we can do that, we bring down the costs. You know, that, that was a, a fundamental economic principle of the net zero uh, review. But the second is to think around you know, new net zero markets. You know, I'm a center-right politician. I don't necessarily think it's the role of, of government to be dictating this change at every single level. And I think it's important to recognize that the government isn't just behind the curve. You know, when I went around the country doing the consultation for the net zero review, you know, actually government was getting in the way by simply being there, actually, if the government's able to create the ecosystem by which we can allow businesses, organizations to be able not to be held back, 
either by legislation, by regulation. I'm not calling for like deregulation here. I'm just calling for having the ability to be more agile and dynamic in our approach, particularly for more innovative new technologies that are needed to come on stream. But, but ultimately, it's about the government sort of understanding that the, new, the old rules of engagement no longer exist and understanding that the institutions we have, the legislation that we have, the regulations that we operate under are all part of an old world, you know, a pre-net zero world that all needs to be updated. And if that can take place, you get the enabling ecosystem by which we can then really accelerate the transition. You, you said that sometimes government gets in the way. You're leaving politics. Do you think you can achieve more outside of politics than you achieved within it? So I sort of feel, I mean, I've had a, a good run. I would have done 14 years, and that was probably longer than I expected. But in terms of me being a party political politician, I don't necessarily want to be cast as, in the future as a you know, sort of Tory MP. I sort of feel that you know, when it comes to net zero, I want to work in that cross-party political space. And to be, you know, the net zero review, I genuinely tried to ensure it was cross-party. I met with all the political parties, whether it was SNP in Scotland, the Welsh Government, Labour, Liberal Democrats. I even see Ed Gemmell here from the Climate Party we met with as part of our, our roundtable. Uh, so you know, for me, you know, I sort of feel that sometimes it's frustrating as a politician. You've got to be a jack of all trades. And for a while, you know, that was something I really enjoyed, you know, knowing a little about a lot. I'd like now, having met so many experts like yourself, to know far more than what I do uh, and to just focus on one single thing and that being the energy transition net zero uh, for my future career. Question for you from the audience. How can we support innovate how can we support innovation net zero related startups in the UK to scale so their products and ideas can have an impact? So I was obviously I fully understand you know some of those challenges around the startups and obviously access to, to finance uh, and, and how we can as a government try to sort of smooth that path on the so-called sort of valley of death. I think there's a real challenge that isn't unsurmountable, which is obviously we've seen access to uh, venture capital funding in climate technologies fall over the past couple of years, gone backwards. The, the, the sort of the limit at which you're looking at either Series A or Series B fundraising, it has to be set at a certain level which is too high for certain technologies. So are there opportunities you know, both at a place-based level where we can bring, you know, a portfolio of technologies together or, or a network level nationally where the government can help row in behind certain technologies in order to try to sort of leverage in private capital investment for the future. I think there's interesting opportunities by how we can sort of look at you know, building that out. And, and we made some recommendations uh, in the Net Zero Review uh, with respect to that. Understanding the opportunity for, for better loan financing as well. Uh, but ultimately, you know, a lot of organizations and companies, that there's too many conditions being placed on some of the competition-based models that the government's currently operating. So I think the other thing, and I found this when I was a minister, as I said, I was minister for science, research, innovation, technology, is the money's important. I understand you know, that that's critical when you're looking at trying to you know, pay your monthly you know, wage bill. But what we don't do very well in this country is roll out the red carpet. And you know, I look at Ireland, I look at France, and actually we, we don't really have the ability in the UK to really showcase talent and, and actually you know, at every sort of point of contact sort of make sure that we are really selling some of the businesses and, and almost you know, bringing in inward investors to sort of you know, work with them to say, look, please invest you know, in this particular technology you know, of the future. 
Yeah, I think there's other opportunities by which we can create future demonstrator projects. That was also a key part of Net Zero review as well, because I think you know, for you know, trying to ensure that certain climate tech organizations are part of a wider movement it is really important and, and that they can see their relevance in the broader picture. I think sometimes you get, I go to events with climate tech organizations and it's, you know, they're all meeting as individual organizations. But you know, where is the thematic support that they need outside of just being climate tech organizations? So it's sort of, you know, to what extent you might look at the circular economy and, and have a sort of you know, demonstrator institute in the same way we had the Faraday Institute for Battery Technologies, which spun out a huge number of additional SMEs and, and new technologies on the back of that, giving people that sense that they belong to a, a community and they're not just left to their own devices is also really important. An audience question asking about the response to the Net Zero review. You mentioned the government response um, and asking whether you're starting to see any tangible action off the back of it as yet. So I, I mean, I guess the, the creation of the new Department of Energy Security and Net Zero came before the Net Zero review, sort of like their response was formally sort of given. And it's great we've got a new department and it's given sort of renewed focus. We've now got a new select committee as a result that will focus on Net Zero. So it's not just about having the new department, it's about having the, the accountability in place, which is also you know, great. But it comes back to that question of scale and pace and timing. And you know, we have an energy security bill that's now come back to Parliament. I spoke in the second reading the other week, but that should have been in, gone through Parliament last September. So we're behind the curve in terms of delivering some of the hydrogen business models, the CCUS business models, you know, looking at sort of potentially what's the new infrastructure operations that we need to put in place in legislation. So I still feel there's an opportunity to go further faster. I know a number of members of Parliament will be putting in amendments, uh, many of which are actually recommendations in the Net Zero Review to push the government to go further. But I do feel that things are moving forward, you know, in a way that maybe last autumn they weren't. You know, we had that vote on fracking. You mentioned in the introduction I voted against the government. You know, it wasn't which turned out to be a, you know, a confidence vote. But now we've ruled out fracking for the, for the foreseeable future. You know, that's another moratorium that's been put in place. They're going to seek to lift the moratorium on onshore wind. The government's agreed to take forwards deployment targets on solar for 70 gigawatts by 2035. Again. You know, another recommendation that's zero review. I think we are in a place now where the government has laid their cards on the table in a way they hadn't done six months ago. The challenge now is obviously to make sure that we all go uh, ourselves to push every political party to go further faster at what's going to be a pivotal moment, which will be the next general election. You know, because whoever forms the next government, it will be under their stewardship whether we meet our NDC for 2030. It will be under their stewardship whether we meet the 600,000 heat pumps by 2028 target. We meet the ZEV mandate for electric vehicles by 2030. So it's really critical that we don't let up on demonstrating the need for further and faster action. You, you said that the government had outright rejected 30 of your recommendations. An audience member wants to know which of those were the most significant for you. So I think most significant sort of rejection offhand, maybe a couple, if I'm allowed that, but the they didn't take forward the Office of Net Zero Delivery, claiming that because they had set up this new department uh, for energy security, Net Zero, that was job done. And it's not, because what I envisaged with an Office for Net Zero Delivery was more like a sort of OBR style independent committee that would be able to set targets for departments. Because that's one of our big challenges. There's no such thing as the UK government. You all know this. You, you go between department, well, it was department for Bayes, that's now been cut up into three. So you've got Desnes, you've got DEFRA, you've got DFT. You know, that dysfunction of government is a product of obviously having these vertical 
silos when it comes to departments. Uh, and what we needed was a horizontal body that's able to effectively say, these are the roadblocks that are in place. These are the pipeline challenges that we need to actually unblock now, because if we don't do that, we will fail to meet our target, really ramp up the, the pressure. That was one sort of you know, rejection that I was you know, probably sort of most frustrated about. There are other issues around methane flaring ban, uh, which I wanted to put in place for 2025. Again, the CCC has called for that, as had the Environmental Audit Committee, which I sit on. Um, Norway's had a methane flaring ban in place since 1971. If we are serious about tackling production you know, emissions at source, recognizing that you know, when it comes to tackling climate change, tackling fossil fuel emissions is, is absolutely the critical challenge uh, first and foremost, why can't we get on and do it? So how much do you think your review has actually shifted the dial in terms of the government's commitment and what's going to be happening? So I think government has responded more positively than maybe what I had expected in terms of not just the number of recommendations they've sort of taken forwards, but I think it has shifted the narrative towards seeing you know, net zero as this opportunity. And you know, it was just serendipitous that the Inflation Reduction Act sort of passed through uh, sort of Washington at the same time as doing the consultation, because then the review landed at this point of saying, you know, we are in this new net zero global race. It's not good enough to stand still. We are losing business. We are losing investment. This is now an economic imperative, not just a, a climate environment one. And I think, you know, the heat is on not just Desnes, but the Treasury. And I think the Treasury now recognise that this is something they're going to have to grip. Otherwise, you know, UK PLC yeah, will pay the price. So we'll finish by giving you the magic wand that everyone on this stage gets. If you could effect a change right now with it, what would it be? I, mean, I think that there are one change is quite difficult, to be honest with you. We have actually this opportunity, to, I'll be putting down amendments in the Energy Security Bill, you know, to send a signal to international climate change. Uh, I still feel you know, opening a coal mine in Cumbria sends absolutely the wrong international signal and, and totally unwinds the UK's climate leadership for the future. I know it's, it's, it's one coal mine, but it's so totemic that we, we really should not be being put in a place. Because for me, the challenge is who are we then as the UK to turn around to any other country? You know, we've set up these just energy transition partnerships with Indonesia and Vietnam where we're trying to get them off coal. You know, I just see this as something that is potentially so disastrous for UK climate leadership. So potentially, you know, in the here and now, that is an immediate decision that should be stopped. Does it make you angry? I think anger is something that I don't often feel because I think for me, the, you know, you all sort of like Al Gore, like get red in the face at Davos or wherever it was. And, and the challenge is, is that, you know, as you said at the beginning, you know, climate change is here to stay now. We will see horrific instances of climate change continue to occur. But if you, if, if you bring in a motion, Sometimes you lose the right to be heard. What I've tried to do with the Net Zero Review and Mission Zero is take that evidence-based approach, take a rational approach to those who often want to make you think that you're emotional, who often want to put you in a box and say that Net Zero is a crazy eco-project. You know, there's no way I want to be put in the same box as the sort of Just Stop Oil protesters. You know, I don't want to lose the legitimacy of, of demonstrating that, this, one, this transition can be done, that it's reasonable, and that it's a reality that needs to happen. I think sometimes, you know, there is a place for anger, but if you're angry all of the time, you lose the right to choose when you wish to be angry. Thank you very much, Chris Skidmore.
to register your interest in attending, exhibiting, sponsoring, or speaking at Innovation Zero 2024, please go to www.innovationzero.com. We look forward to meeting you at Olympia in London on the 30th of April and the 1st of May 2024.